Hello, everyone. This is Ryan, and welcome to the City Beautiful podcast. So, a uh, funny thing happened this past Sunday. Uh, the first part of my message in our colony series was not recorded, so uh, we're doing something we haven't really done uh, before. I'm sitting in my dining room, and I'm going to record uh, the first part of my sermon, and at some point it will flow into uh, what I spoke this past Sunday, but um, I'm excited. This gives us an opportunity. I wanted to start um, with a poem by Wendell Berry that we read uh, during worship. I think it so beautifully sets the tone uh, for what my message was about. And so I just encourage you uh, just to get in a space uh, to really listen and allow the Lord to give you an image uh, through the words of the poet Wendell Berry in his poem, The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Heavenly Father, we dedicate this time to you. Lord, would you make your spirit known to us, um, even now work in us and through us, uh, that your words would penetrate deep, that, Lord, as we examine this idea of creation, of nature, we would see that your invisible qualities made known to us in the beautiful world that you've gifted us with. And may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever-pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we've been in this series uh, called Colony. We've been asking this question, what does it look like uh, to be the people of God in the 21st century? What does it look like for us to be the faithful presence and to meet the world the way that it actually looks today. And just a couple of weeks ago when I was doing a sermon on the church, um, I had this very stark revelation um, that when we obsess uh, about our personal salvation, that is when we make our personal salvation the be-all and end-all of the pursuit of God and the pursuit of our faith, then it actually makes the most of the Bible unintelligible um, and it makes the church pretty useless. And I think that's very true for what I want to speak about today, about the idea uh, that the colony is the place where God begins to redeem creation, that our stories of personal redemption, your salvation and mine, as beautiful as they are, they fit in this larger story um, that God is beginning. I like to imagine it almost that God is weaving back together the thing that was cleft in twain in the very beginning. Um, that the spiritual world and the physical world were ripped apart by sin, and that the church is the place where God is beginning to weave those things back together. And so we see that through the entire story, not just of the church, not just of human beings, of you and I, um, but through the entire cosmos, through the entire universe. 
And so the lenses through which I want us to look at this idea of God redeeming creation itself through uh, are three lenses that I come back to time and again in my own uh, in my own walk, and especially when I'm writing a sermon. Um, this goes back to a series that we did a couple years ago uh, called Abide, where we examined these three concepts, intimacy, identity, and purpose. And then we said um, it's through intimacy with God that we really learn how to inhabit our identities. It's one thing for us to um, to know and to have it spoken over us that we're the sons and daughters of God, that we are his image bearers. But it's true intimacy or relationship or connection with God that really enables us to understand what does that truly mean to be a son of God, to be a daughter of God, to bear his image. And as we continue to pursue intimacy with God, we learn to inhabit our identities all the more. And not only as we engage in that process do we inhabit our identities and to see what they really mean in the everydayness of our lives, but our purpose is something that naturally arises out of that same intimacy. That as as Christians, we don't believe that we have to perform or we have to do in order to earn God's favor. But it's actually out of God's favor in our lives. Um, It's out of learning how to inhabit the place he's created for us in his family. That our collective purpose and then our individual purposes naturally arise. And this is the place where we often find that our little nuanced personalities and our spiritual gifts and our individual patterns uh, and passions collectively Uh, come together to speak about what God is really like, that you and I have been crafted in very specific ways that when we come together as the church, uh, the nature of God is made known more and more in ever-increasing glory, as we might say, uh, as we each learn how to use those things uh, to advance the causes of the kingdom. And so what I'm talking about uh, with this idea that God is redeeming creation, I want us to look first at the idea of purpose or vocation, and then I want us to step a little bit deeper to look at intimacy and identity. So when we're talking about purpose, let's begin here. Our primary vocation as human beings is to take care of God's good earth. And I think it's so important that we recognize in our creation narrative, we're initially set up to understand that this is a good world. You see, there were all these different myths and legends and all of the other little cultures surrounding uh, the Hebrew story. And most of them were stories of the gods clashing, that the gods were essentially superhumans that looked something like us, but they had the same struggles that we do. There was even this one Mesopotamian myth that it was two gods battling against one another, and one god took the other and literally broke him over his knee and ripped the known earth out of his his chest cavity. And if that's the kind of creation story that you start with, then it shapes so much of how you see the world today. You see that the world is a fundamentally broken place, um, that all things begin out of strife and discord. But that's not the story that we find in the beginning of the Hebrew scriptures in Genesis chapters 1 and two, we find a very different story, a God who does not create out of discord or ambivalence, but a God who actually creates out of generosity, a God who creates out of joy, a God who creates out of the desire to share the experience of being uh, with his own creation. 
And that's where I want us to really focus in tonight, especially when we're looking at this idea that as human beings, our primary vocation is to take care of God's good earth. And so I'm going to read uh, Genesis 1, uh, verses 26 to 28. Now, this is taking place on the sixth day of creation in the very first chapter of Genesis uh, in the creation poem. It says this, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now, a lot of times in Hebrew writing, or in, especially in poetry, um, in order to magnify the importance of a person or a being, you actually pluralize their name. So quite literally, and elsewhere in Genesis, it says uh, the Abrahams in order to talk about the importance of uh, the father of our faith, Abraham. But here when it says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, it's elevating that idea that God is very important, yet it can also be translated to what we perceive as Christians to be uh, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so even there in the first line, when we begin to speak of human beings' place in creation, we find there our divine identity, that we are made in the image and the likeness of God. I like to think of it almost that we're this mirror that reflects the image of God out into the known world and, to sh- and shines his light. Or another way to look at it is that we are the ambassadors or the bridge between uh, heaven and earth, the spiritual world and the physical world. And God has placed us uniquely there to care for his creation. And so this was actually our first job. This is the first thing that God asked of us. And it continues on uh, in Genesis 1. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So not only not start with brokenness, but we start with God's character. And he imbues in us that same character, that same potential to reflect who he really is. And twice we find God speaking over us that we are to rule and subdue creation. Now, a lot of times, again, if we come from that background where uh, authority is inherently militaristic, again, that speaks to a world that is fundamentally broken and needs some sort of order and someone to come in with power and fix everything, when we hear that command to rule and subdue, we think that what that means for us when it comes to creation is that we have to use almost a violent force to keep it in check in some way to control it or to manipulate it or to keep it under our thumb. But I think even there we're remiss that when we recognize that God creates out of joy and generosity, that God's desire for creation is not that it would be controlled, but that it would actually uh, flourish, then we understand that our uh, command to rule and subdue the earth uh, comes out of an authority that's based on love and generosity. And so what we're really called to, our first vocation as the human race, is to be the gardeners of the world, to co-labor with the natural processes that God has set in place in creation, and to help it to flourish. 
you know, for several years I've attempted uh, to be something of a gardener wherever I've lived. I've tried to keep a little bit of a garden and I've learned so much in it. It's become a very deep joy to me uh, because what I've learned with gardening is a tremendous amount of patience um, and almost releasing uh, the things that I cannot control to the natural processes of the world. Um, and in order to be a better gardener, I have to learn to become sensitive to what seasons are and how much water is too much water, how much sunlight is not enough sunlight, what good soil looks like, how to discern between what is a weed and what is a tender shoot coming forth in the kind of plant that I desire. And it's really encouraged me to become more sensitive to the natural processes in the world and to come alongside of these rules and laws that God has established of the way that creation works. And so there's enough in there that yes, there is a, an, the act of subduing out of love, but there's also a submission to the goodness of God's world, that my job is not to control it, but to help it to flourish. And perhaps this is why I actually disdain the idea of plumbing, uh, that it seems so unnatural and not an organic process that's entirely upon my ability to to pick apart the thing and to root around in the other thing and to tighten things with a wrench and whatever it might be. Uh, but I love that, that that idea, that image of gardening really gives us that, that true perspective of what God has first called us to be. And so we see that the, the role that was given to Adam and Eve and to human beings in the beginning was to rule and subdue, to be fruitful and to increase in number. Now, if you know this story from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 and then to 3, you know that mankind falls in Genesis 3. And it's interesting to recognize, and I'm not exactly sure uh, what this means or how it looks. It's one of these things that we have to take by faith. But to recognize that when mankind fell into sin, in some way, creation fell with us. That the, the universe was put out of whack when human beings uh, first introduced sin into the world and we fell out of uh, living into our true identities as the image bearers of God. And this is something that Paul actually brings up uh, in the middle of Romans 8. Um, I love the, the book of Romans. We can almost imagine there's these three mountaintops in Romans as we're reading. We're kind of crescendoing first in Romans 5, um, and then it, it, it builds again, and it comes to this place in Romans 8, and then finally it builds uh, into the beautiful images of Romans 12. Um, but Romans 8 is fascinating. Here, Paul talks about what it looks like for us to live life uh, by, by the leading or the prompting of the Holy Spirit in the first few verses. Um, and then towards the end, we have the piece that says, therefore, we are more than conquerors. And a lot of times, again, when we're looking through that lens that the, that the Christian faith is first and foremost about our personal salvation and us living a better life, then when we come to this middle piece, Romans 8, uh, 18 to 22, we find ourselves uh, not really understanding what's going on uh, because it doesn't seem to necessarily fit in this idea just of our personal salvation. But when we recognize that Paul is really speaking to this Genesis idea that with the fall of man came the, the fall or the disorientation of creation itself, then it really helps um, put this in better context of what Romans 8 is really about. So let's go ahead and jump into Romans 8 and the 18th verse. Paul writes this, 
I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And what is glory? We've talked about it before, that glory is something like the manifest presence of God. In the Old Testament, in um, the tabernacle, and then later in the temple, there would be this glowing orb of light that would hover over the Ark of the Covenant. It was called the Shekinah, or the glory of God. And while Israel believed, like we do, that God is everywhere, that God is omnipresent, um, it was also this helpful visual reminder to those who were blessed enough to witness it, that God is also right here. God has a location God has a place, and his place is made known uh, by this word glory. And so the glory of God is his manifest presence. But there's also this connotation to the word glory that speaks to what the world looks like when God is in charge. That glory speaks as much to his presence as it also does to God's rule and authority. And so when we're talking about glory in the context of creation, what we're talking about is creation being under the good rule of God as God calls all of creation back into its original created intention. So I want to read that line again from Romans 8 and then continue on. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, in mankind. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. What a powerful image that is. That all of creation is on tiptoe waiting for us, for you and me, for the human species to be revealed as what we truly are as God's children and as his image bearers. And it carries with it the connotation, not just of our identity, but of our purpose, of us stepping into being who God's called us to be when it comes to caring for creation and seeing creation flourish in the way that he intended for it to. And so creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This is a beautiful image that God, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. We know this all too well, not just within our own bodies, Uh, within our own stories, but in the cycle of life and death that we find in the world, things are programmed to grow up and to grow strong and to be fruitful, and then at the end of life to gradually taper off into weakness and eventually death. And so creation itself is, is bound to that same process that you and I are, that we live and we grow up, and then we gradually diminish to the point of death. And so creation itself is waiting to be liberated from that process and to be brought into freedom. What is freedom? Freedom is our ability to be who we were created to be. It's an identity word. And then glory. What is glory? That's what happens when we are under the rule of God and we're doing what God has created for us to do. And then Paul finishes off by saying this, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. This image that creation 
is groaning, is waiting. And Paul goes on later on to say, not only this, but the spirit within us groans in those same kind of pains, that expectation. And this is a groan that comes out of pain and frustration, but it's a groan that also comes out of anticipation because we know where God is taking the story. We know what his intentions are, and we know where it is that God wants us to arrive. And so Paul is saying that the entire cosmos is waiting for salvation, and that God intends to save not just us, not just you and I, but the whole universe. And so our redemption as human beings is intimately tied in with that of creation. That when we begin to say yes to our divine vocation to be God's gardeners, creation is, is able to be redeemed along with us. I think it's a tragedy that so many avenues within the church and so many Christians expect the world to burn that we've inherited this bad theology, this false dualism that says that this world at its core is not very good. As a friend of mine used to say, we often uh, start the story in Genesis 3 with the fall, but so few of us start in Genesis 1 where all is declared good. And this dualism leads us to think that, that, that matter, that physical, the physical world is fundamentally evil. Yet, the spiritual world, that's the goodness. And so when we think about this idea of heaven or the, the end of time or whatever happens to us after death, that's where we tend to think of us going away somewhere else, that heaven is someplace else. And we've inherited these images of chubby little babies with wings playing harps on clouds. And we think that heaven must be incredibly boring because at the core, we expect this world to burn, this world to be done away with. But the amazing thing is that's not the story we find in Scripture. That God, after the flood in Genesis 6 through 9, the story of Noah and the ark, promises never again to destroy the earth. And so God enters into a whole different process there where he's speaking about redemption. Now, what is redemption as opposed to destruction. My definition for redemption that I want to offer you is this. Redemption means to give new value to something that's already there, the raw qualities that are already present. You and I know all too easily that it's much easier to scrap something that we started and isn't working than it is to actually take what we've already created or already what sits in front of us and to continue to work with it, to massage it, to move it around, to rearrange it and realign it, to get it to be what we have intended for it to be. But I believe that that process is actually far more rewarding than the idea of just scrapping something and starting all over. And I really believe that that's God's intentions with our world. Rather than scrapping it and that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, God desires to redeem every iota of the universe in his creation. Every single molecule he wants to redeem and to realign into his original created intention. And so now we're going to continue on uh, with the sermon uh, from what was recorded on Sunday. Here we go. Uh, our, friend, our friend Jennifer is a biology teacher. She teaches uh, high school. Is that right, Craig? Yeah, high school. She was telling me 
several months ago that she's in her class and they're talking about taking care of creation. They're specifically talking about animal conservation. And she informed her high school students that in their lifetime, it is very possible that Indian elephants will go extinct. And these kids, bless their hearts, their response was, so? We don't, we don't see them. They're not, they're not in our world. Why would we really care? You see what happens when we get attached to this isolationist view. That somehow we're disconnected from what's going on around us. That if it doesn't directly affect our lives, then it's not something that we're really supposed to care about. But if God cares for the entire earth, then perhaps it's something that we should care for as well. And I think when we start to see the world the way that God sees it through his eyes, as our minds are transformed in the likeness of Christ and we begin that process of seeing as he does and acting as he's asking us to, it becomes worship. Our care for creation is an act of worship that contributes to the symphony of the natural world. That all of creation is singing this beautiful song and we all have our different parts. And our job is almost to be the orchestra conductor that comes in and enables all of those different parts of creation to sing their song in the best way that they can possible. Because what is worship at its core? Worship is when you are who you were created to be. When you inhabit your identity, that's called worship. And so when creation inhabits its identity, it's seen as worship. We're going to read uh, Psalm 19, the first six verses that show this. And I want to do this um, responsively by half verse. This is the way that the church has worshipped for centuries. And even before that, in the Jewish synagogue, they do this call and response when it came to the Psalms. And it was this form of worship that as we're immersed in the, in the scriptures together, we're speaking those over one another. So we're going to take these first six verses, and I'm going to read the first part of the verse, and you're going to read the second part. And I don't want you to sit there and go, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Give it a little gusto. This is worship, okay? I'll bring out the guitar if we need it to be. But this is worship. This is us declaring the truth of how God sees creation of what's going on. And as we speak that over one another, it inhabits our, our, the very core of who we are, and it becomes more and more real. So we're going to, to, to declare this as worship. I'll read, and you're going to respond. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Yes. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like the bridegroom coming out of the chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens. And makes its circuit to the other, nothing is arrived at its form. Amen. I love this image, the heavens, the stars, and the sun and the moon declare the glory of God. And it says day after day, they pour forth speech. And then it says they have no speech. They use no words. How do you speak without speaking? How do you proclaim without proclamation? How does your voice go forth without using any words, yet using all of them at the same time? When you step into your created purpose, when you are exactly who God created you to be. 
And this is so very true of every atom in the universe, every atom in creation, except for us, except for us. This is the one thing that separates us from the rest of creation. We are the only creatures capable of disagreeing with our design. The only ones. Stars can't stop being stars. Trees cannot stop being trees. Bobcats cannot stop being bobcats. Sloths cannot stop being sloths. Dogs will try to be someone else, but they can't. They can only be dogs impersonating people. And it's (laughs) super cute, I know. But we are the only creatures in creation that can receive an identity from God that our DNA speaks to and say, no, that's not for me. I don't agree with that. I think we're the only thing in creation that's actually capable of being a subversion of what God had intended for it to be. But this also sets us up that our worship is particularly powerful because we worship not out of our created design, but out of a free will choice to inhabit our created design. And so it means so much more to God when you and I worship because we're choosing into that. I think this is why God created human beings instead of just leaving the planet pristine as it was, even though he risks the chance that we're going to mess it all up because God desired that level of worship that speaks out of free will. And so when you and I come into agreement with who we are, but we also come into agreement with what we've been commanded to do. God does not make suggestions. God doesn't have these general hopes of what maybe we would like to do if if possibly we have the time to be human beings. No, God makes commands of what we are to do, to rule the earth, to subdue it, to help it to flourish, to care what God cares about. Look out, look out. Be willing to see what creation is possible when human beings come alongside of God's good earth and co-labor to help it to flourish. Several weeks ago, Logan and I talked about this idea that justice is a form of worship. (laughs) It's a good one. You should go back and listen to it. It has some really great points. But we talked about this idea that justice is the form of worship, that when we go out into the world and we see it the way that God does and we seek to enact that kind of world to bring change, that is a form of worship. And it actually gives sustainability to the things that God has called for us to do. And one of the things that I said in that that I recognized in my own life about a year ago is when I recycle, I'm worshiping God. (laughs) Man, I'm loving this. Can we just for a moment... Anybody in here that you have a job where you take care of creation or you educate people about it, please stand up. Don't be ashamed. You take care of creation. (laughs) Amen. That's wonderful. Because that's our first job. And when I realized that even the simple act of recycling can be a form of worship. Instead of it being this nuisance thing that I have to do every couple of days, it's become more of a joy because now there's intentionality added into it. So much of what God asks Israel to do through the Torah is taking very mundane, normal, everyday things and making them sacred just by recognizing because I'm doing something differently, God is now present. He's manifest. His glory is there. And so for us, something as simple as as recycling or entering into conservation, for us to take up global initiatives where, where it's, it's about taking care of creation, 
where we sidestep all of these silly arguments about whether or not gl- global warming is happening or whatever to say, what is God's desire? Let's, we can talk about all of the data till, till we're blue in the face. But what would God want? Would God want us to be so careless when it comes to creation? Would God want us to be so frivolous with the good earth that he's blessed us with? And see, that dramatically shifts the conversations away from annoying annoying things like facts. That's not what I'm saying (laughs) in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) Facts are important. We need facts. And we need to start listening to scientists a little bit more in the church. But facts aren't enough to change hearts. It's an encounter with a God who dramatically cares for creation. And I think for us as Christians, we should be at the forefront of the conversations about what it means for us to stand up for animal rights, what it means for us to examine what are clean fuel resources, for us to look at what, you know, what do we do to clean up our oceans? What do we do to be more responsible with the resources that we've been blessed with? And all of those things become worship because it's us saying yes, not only to our God-given identities, but also our God-given vocations. And as we say yes to our vocation, creation can do what she was created to do in ever-increasing glory. That her glory, God's glory, is magnified the more that creation flourishes and does what she was created to do. And this is an opportunity for you and I to practice this image that we get in Simon again in the New Testament of the new heavens and the new earth. Not that God has scrapped something and taken us somewhere else, but he's performed the miracle of death and resurrection, of redemption, of restoration, where he's bringing a new heaven and a new earth out of the old heaven and the the old earth. You see, for us, the way forward in many ways is the return to the beginning. That when we see this image of the Garden of Eden where everything was perfect and harmonious and the symphony of the world was humming along, that you and I get to be the orchestra conductors that help that to flourish. You want an image of what heaven is going to be like. Hold on to that. A beautiful and created and good world that speaks to the glory of God. And so do you and I respond to God's good creation out of this place of dominion and fear or out of humility and love, where we see things the way that God does. So, we've spoken of purpose, of vocation, the things that we've been created to do. Now, I want us to go a little bit deeper, and I want us to begin to talk about intimacy and identity, and what does creation have to offer us in those regards. Our relationship to nature is a powerful way to connect with God and to discover our humanity. I was in conversation this week um, with a friend of mine in the Greek Orthodox Church, and he passed along this quote by St. Maximus the Confessor. And if everybody's looking for a, for a cool nickname, you're more than welcome to take that one. And Maximus was a monk in the 7th century, uh, possibly born in Palestine. And he said this, and I think this is so beautiful. Man is not a being isolated from the rest of creation. By his very nature, he's bound up with the whole of the universe. In his way to union with God, man in no way leaves creatures aside, but gathers together in. He loves the whole cosmos disordered by sin, that it may be transfigured by grace. 
You see, what we're even learning about the way in which we're created is that the, the building blocks of life, the subatomic particles that make you and me and a tree and a rock and a star Andromeda, at the fundamental basic elements, it's all the same. We are so very connected that you and I are quite literally built out of stardust and the breath of God. That's how you make a human being. If you don't believe me, let's look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It says this, as, as the writer is retelling the story of creation. The Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Ladies, if you need the formula for the perfect man, there it is. <laughs> the dust of the earth, when it says the word dust, you know, a lot of times we have negative connotations. Often at, at, at funerals we say dust to dust, ashes to ashes, and dust to dust. But it's not a bad thing. The word here, dust, you know, in the old King James, for example, it might use the word humus. But that word in Hebrew is the word adama, and it's the, it's the word for ground. But it's very intimately connected with the word for man, which is adam, which is where we get the name adam. And so even there's a little play on words here in the beginning of Genesis that says, out of the adama comes the adam. So you and I are intimately connected to the earth, to the humus, to the foundational building blocks upon which God has built all the rest of his creation. But he took that humus, that dust, that ground, and he breathed his spirit into it and animated it. And he placed us as the ambassadors between the spiritual realm and the physical realm, that we reflect the glory of God out into all the world so that it can be reminded of what God is really like. And this image is so beautiful to me because it reminds us that God believes in the physical world. Like, again, God does not want to do away with the physical world, but God believes in the physical. God loves the physical. If God didn't love the physical, he would have never sent Jesus in a body. He would have never taken dust of the earth and formed it together in the womb of Mary, and then breathed his spirit into it. Jesus was dust and spirit in its perfect form. He's the foretaste of what all of us are called to be, and someday will be. So God reveals himself through his own creation, through nature. So we looked at that bit in Romans 8 where Paul says all of creation is waiting in expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And he's actually picking up something that he spoke in the very first chapter of his letter. In Romans 1.20 he says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And what are God's invisible qualities? qualities, his goodness, his omnipotence, his omniscience, the, the idea that God is a God of harmony and togetherness. All of these things are intimately connected to the fact that we see it as evidenced in creation itself. You know, I spoke before about what does God's revelation mean to us, and previously I've identified three ways that God speaks to us. He speaks to us directly through his spirit, he speaks to us through his word, and he speaks to us through the church or the community of God, the people of God. But even in getting ready for this, for this sermon, I was reminded God actually speaks to us a fourth way. That God speaks to us through his own creation. 
that if creation is singing the symphony that the world was created to sing, then we tune into that and we begin to listen to Brother Sun and Sister Moon and every animal and plant, and we see the evidence of God's invisible qualities all around us, so we are without excuse. We are in part of the Reformation that we're in right now in the worldwide church is a coming back to the idea of beauty. That for centuries, we haven't had very much use for beauty because it's not practical. But we're realizing that beauty is one of the ways that God most adamantly speaks about his character. And we see that typified in nature perfectly. This is why so often Jesus used natural imagery to speak about the kingdom. He said, take a look at the lilies. Consider the birds. Look at the mustard seed. Look at this plant. Jesus was constantly inviting us to slow down and to disconnect from civilized society and look at nature and see how it speaks to the invisible qualities of God to reveal to us what his kingdom is actually like. I want to posit to you that so many of us, so many of you experience anxiety and depression and despair because you are surrounded by concrete and wires every hour of your life. Your soul within you is crying out for a connection to nature because your soul knows how intimately connected you are in the spiritual realm to what God has created in the physical. And so many of us are disoriented and we have this anxiety because we're surrounded by concrete and buildings and roads and cars and walls and tile. And we sit in front of screens and we wonder why we can't hear the voice of God. We wonder why we can't even hear our own still small voice within us. And I guarantee you that if you were to take a moment and to unplug and to go out into nature and to be still and to know that God is God and you are not, your problems won't go away, but you'll get a far greater context for what it means to be a human being. And you will not reduce yourself to your anxieties or your depression or your despair because your soul will reconnect with the natural world. And so I want us to stand and we're gonna continue to worship that not only are we to be the orchestrators of the symphony of the world, but we are to contribute our voices to that same song, that when we co-labor with creation itself, the glory of God is made ever known. So if you'd bow your heads and pray with me. Almighty and everlasting God, you made the universe with all its marvelous order, its atoms, worlds, and galaxies, and the infinite complexity of living creatures. Grant that we, as we probe the mysteries of your creation, we may come to know you more truly and more surely fulfill our role in your eternal purpose. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. together and I just encourage you to close your eyes and whether you just sing or whether you just listen think about it from the perspective of the first occupation that God gave us to be caretakers of his creation to be lovers of what 
God has made and said is good. Praise God for all